My name is Dina Dimitrialis and I'm the curator of the Mardi Gras 2016. So I really thank you for joining this important discussion. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We're absolutely thrilled to be having this discussion as part of queer thinking, and I am very pleased that this panel is being presented today by ACOM. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with ACOM's work, I encourage you to look at what they are doing. They're doing incredible work in the LGBTQI space. And whether it's services or research or advocacy, it's pretty far-reaching and it does have an impact on a lot of people. So it's just a great fit to have them as part of this. Before I pass on to our moderator, a bit of very quick housekeeping. This panel will run for an hour, and then afterwards at 5.30, we encourage you to come and join us in the foyer. The bar will be open, and we can continue those conversations afterwards. I will now hand over. Very pleased that ACON's Kai Noonan will be moderating today. Uh, Kai is coordinator of the Family and Domestic Violence Project at ACON, so I'll hand over. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dino, and thank you for the acknowledgement of country and for introducing me. Um, I hate public speaking, so I might have forgotten my name or something really embarrassing, so I appreciate that. Um, I just want everyone to know that this fancy-looking microphone is actually because we're being recorded. We're going to turn this into a podcast. Um, I just think that's really important to say, just if anybody wants to share anything like that, just know that it will be recorded. Um, of course, you can come to us later and we'll give you the contact details at the end if there's anything that you want left out of there. Um, again, I'd like to thank you all for talking about a really important issue tonight. I personally believe that this is the one of the biggest issues affecting the LGBTIQ community today, as well as um, mainstream, for want of a better word, society as well, non-LGBTIQ people who are undoubtedly affected by domestic violence, um, domestic family violence as well. In saying that, some things may be brought up tonight that may upset some people here. You may feel triggered. You may have memories, you may feel a lot of emotions, particularly if you saw the play before, you're going to see the play after. You may be concerned about somebody that you know or love or care for. Um, and for that reason, we've actually invited along two of ACON's counsellors, Sarah and Christos, today. So they're down the front here, and I've actually, they've very kindly given up their Saturday afternoon to hang back after today's discussion. I've asked them to hang around here, very inconspicuously. If you'd like to have a chat to them about anything, they're here for you. Um, if it's about yourself or somebody else, it doesn't even have to be anybody in the LGBTQ community. There is some information brochures at the bar. I'll be hanging around the bar for many reasons, I'm sure. But one of them being I'll explain those information. I can give them to you. You can call today. You can call Monday. Um, take them home with you. Give them to a friend. They are there for you tonight. That's my cousin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll delete that from the podcast. <laughs> on tonight's panel, um, and I am going to get this out because I don't want to forget the importance. Um, at the end there we have Moo. Moo is the CEO of a small team of Domestic Violence New South Wales. That's the peak body for domestic and family violence specialist support services. She's definitely passionate about improving policy and practice responses to LGBTIQ people and families impacted by violence. Moo says that she looks forward to a day when all kids are taught about the intersections between violence, bullying, homophobia and healthy relationships. She believes that LGBTIQ community conversations, such as today's panel, are key to raising awareness about abuse in our relationships and finding ways to create healthier, queer, intimate partnerships. Thanks, Moo. Just going to keep... <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, Brad, 
Bisomu, um, was working in ACON's Lesbian and Gay Anti-Violence Project back in the 2000s when it first started. Um, and they first started doing work on domestic violence in the LGBTI communities. He worked on many of the early campaigns, however he's here today to talk about his personal experience in an abusive relationship uh, with a man that lasted over five years. So he's very brave, so thanks a lot Brave for coming along. Sergeant Kate Baker, she stands out, I don't need to point out who she is, <coughs> joined the New South Wales Police Force in May 2000 and has worked at Eastern Suburbs, Surrey Hills and Kings Cross local area commands. One of the primary reasons Kate joined the New South Wales Police was to become a gay lesbian liaison officer. As a proud member of the Sydney LGBTIQ community, she believed it was important to improve and strengthen the relationship between the community and the New South Wales Police. And the best way to do that was to work with both communities. Cedric, to my left, is a solicitor at the Inner City Legal Centre's Safe Relationships Project. He's a human rights and anti-discrimination lawyer and previously worked on a litigation lawyer law on Aboriginal land rights and nature title. Is there any of that? Yeah, that's <laughs> It's his handwriting. It's handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also teaches at ACU and works at SOFA. Good to know. Thanks, um, And Alana, to the left. Um, this is my fault bringing the program oh, to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alana Valentine was actually the writer of the play Ladies' Day, which was shown just before the matinee is before now, and the show is after. Do you want to do me a favour and save me and introduce yourself? <laughs> <laughs> if you. If you buy the program, you'll see. Uh, Ladies' Day is my first play at Richmond, so that's the main thing to say. Uh, a lot of the work I do is in um, what's often called verbatim theatre, so it's uh, it's interview based. That's another thing you might be interested to know about my ongoing work. And I will just plug your other show that just started oh, yes. last night in the Campbelltown Arts Centre. Are <coughs> uh, you? wrote and co-directed it and it's called One Million Beats. Yeah, with an Aboriginal poet called Romaine Morton, some of you may know. And so if I have to leave early, it's because I've got to dash out to Campbelltown to another show, which we're not talking about because ladies say it's so on tonight. <laughs> but you can probably fit both in one way. Yeah, that's right. So thank you very much to our panel. Um, because you have to go, Alana, I might just start with you. Yeah. Um, I do have some questions prepared. Panel, feel free to jump in any time that you like um, and then I'll say plenty of time for the audience to jump in as well with any questions. Um, first of all, what I want to know is what compelled you to write Ladies' Day? Can I start with a piece of audience participation? How many people have actually seen the play? Great, so I'm not going to ask how many are planning to see it, I'm assuming that all the rest of you are. Uh, so that's interesting that most people haven't seen it. Um, the play, what made me write the play was I went to Broome and I spoke to quite a lot of members of the, particularly the gay community over there, obviously the wider GLBTI community, but mostly gay men. And uh, I have spent quite a bit of time in the territory, in uh, uh, not just Broome, but in Darwin. I had a play in Alice Springs and a play in Catherine. And uh, through my career, I have noticed that the way people deal with what happens to them depends on who they are. So it was when I was writing a play called Parramatta Girls, which is about women who are incarcerated in a, a Parramatta Girls um, sort of, was a, a place for what are called uncontrollable women. It was shut down in 1974, but it was for um, women who, young women who'd broken the law in some way, including being in a, uh, an alcoholic uh, parent experience where the child was charged and put into these these homes. So um, I met a lot of girls there and one woman 
said to me that she had been bullied by the other girls and it was so bad that she uh, left Australia and never came back. And it was really interesting um, talking to other women who had had some sort of other violent abuse at the, at the home. And um, they said, oh, but compared to other people, Alana, it's nothing. You don't want to speak to me. And I started to understand that an aspect of human nature is that we diminish our stories according to who we are as people. So it's not about what has happened to you, but about who you are and how you think about it. So really, the answer to your question, Kai, is I wanted to write the play because I wanted to look at the ways in which some of, some of us think that what is banal or insignificant um, for us may actually be uh, very serious and worthy of, of thinking about and talking about. So the play is, is about that. It's about the way we deal with different... Um, different aspects of, of violence and abuse, but, but diminish it uh, according to what we think is dramatic or interesting. Um, so, yeah, so that's the reason I wrote the plan. Yeah. So, I believe that the information that you got for writing the script actually came from interviewing part of the LGBTIQ community in Broome. Yeah. Is domestic violence something that, or violence in general, something that the community talking about or is this something that you found really hidden and buried? Uh, no. Um, I mean obviously I especially in a small town like Broome I'm kind of not really prepared to um, disclose where the main stories about domestic violence came from because what starts to happen is people in regional towns then play a guessing game you know whose story is this who might have told her this I mean, my contract with the audience um, in Ladies' Day is that all of the stories are actually based on real things that people have told me. Um, but I've spent my, you know, all my adult life in the, the community, and so you know, over those years, I have heard those stories. I did also particularly hear a fair few stories in the territory when I was there. But like I say, I just I don't I don't really want to say exactly where sincerely. I, I, these stories have been told to me. I'm not making them up. Um, I just want to open something to the panel. So we're, we are talking about domestic and family violence in LGBTI communities. Is this something completely new? Do you guys think like that it's okay? It's new that's occurring, or new that's been new that's being talked about? Oh, it's definitely. It's it's definitely new. It's it's, it's coming up more. People are becoming. More likely to report? Not enough, but it's, it's certainly coming to the fore more than it used to be. No one wants to say anything about 10, 15 years ago. There was so, enough. Yeah, I was going to say maybe it's a good time for Brad to talk about where some of this work came from because he was there right at the beginning. Yeah, there was a number of them. Um, uh, so I'll go back before when I, when I started. The women's movement has talked about it for, since the 70s, probably. Um, uh, but it, I suppose it never kind of picked up the steam to get out of the kind of the small communities or groups who were talking about it. Um, in 1994, there was a big conference um, started by the Innocent Legal Centre, possibly. But anyway, somebody like that, they did a big conference and they kind of hoped that that would get it going onto the agenda. It didn't, didn't quite get up there. And then in about 2002, 2000, yeah, about 2002, um, I was working at the Lesbian and Gay Anti-Violence Project at ACON 
and I'd had the job for about three weeks or something. Um, and we got a call from Darlinghurst Community Health Centre saying we'd like we want a meeting on same-sex domestic violence. It was called then. Um, uh, can can ACOM send somebody along? And we went along, and there was about sixty organisations represented. And they and it had all come together because the Darlinghurst Community Health Centre had had. I might not exactly have the right number, but maybe about 20 men who'd come through, all experiencing domestic violence. And they didn't know what to do. They had no concept of what to do. Um, and so it all kind of started coming together about the men. Um, and, you know, we had absolutely no resources. There's nobody whose job had this in their title. And the whole, the, the interagency, it was called the Same Sex Domestic Violence Interagency then. So they basically got together and we just started trying to do stuff. And like literally it included photocopying articles and sticking into a manual and posting it to people um, who work in services. And we were so happy that the printer had actually printed it wrong. So they printed it single-sided and we'd ask for double-sided. So we got them to reprint it for us. So we had twice the number of copies. Um, and that was the very first thing we did as a kind of role model. Right. Um, maybe you could give a little bit of background at the moment. How prevalent is domestic violence or domestic violence in LGBTIQ relationships? Look, the, um, there's not a huge amount of uh, really solid research that's been done in Australia. Certainly the piece that's kind of quoted more than anything else is Private Lives, which was done in 2006. That was a study of 5,500 uh, LGBTI Australians, and they asked, um, it was really a health survey, um, and they asked a number of questions um, about experiences of violence, and specifically a couple of questions about domestic violence, or intimate partner violence. Um, and they found roughly, I think it was about 28, 29% of gay men, 37% uh, of um, lesbians identified that they'd been in an abusive relationship. Um, for trans and intersex people, significantly higher. But the numbers of trans and intersex people who actually participated in that study were fairly small. Um, but if you look at international evidence, it's fairly similar. So we're thinking probably one in three-ish, possibly more. Um, and that's not talking about experiences of family violence or um, anything outside the intimate partner context. Um, certainly, uh, we would like to see some more research done um, around um, whether LGBTIQ people are experiencing that one in three in, in LGBTIQ relationships or whether it's in a, in a heterosexual cisgender relationship context. But um, I don't know, I think we get a bit hung up on numbers. Um, particularly, you know, I work, in, um, I work in the broader kind of mainstream field of domestic and family violence and we have these complicated, convoluted arguments about, you know, how many, what percentage of, um, of victims are, are female and male and and I think we sort of lose the context and the point, which is that we need to have services for everybody. Um, certainly some of the research that the interagency has done um, in the last couple of years has really looked at where people seek help. Um, and that's about, you know, providing really good mainstream responses, which can be really, really good. And that can be, you know, police, it can be mainstream domestic violence services, it can be, you know, going to your GP and having a conversation with your doctor all of those sorts of places, but also we know that LGBTIQ people need specialist support as well because there are extra things that mainstream services don't necessarily understand. So it's it's really about having a range of different places, like really soft and hard entry points. Um, you, you really, you touched on there about access to services and I suppose, I guess, maybe what I read from that is that the services for the 
for our communities, perhaps not there when, I mean, there's not enough services for heterosexual cisgender women as well, but it's even less for our services. So do, just generally, do you think there are actually differences between, or differences or similarities between LGBTQ people experiencing domestic violence as opposed to non-LGBTQ people experiencing domestic violence? Um, are, are there special needs that actually need the differences? Yeah, I think, I think as an LGBTQ community, we do need specialist support services. But the nature of domestic violence is probably the same across the board. Um, in terms of the Safe Relationships Project, one of the recurring themes is men feel a terrible sense of shame about being assisted through the issues around violence in their relationships, um, as do women often, but there are women's domestic violence court advocacy services in most courts, um, and we deliver training to them as well, so they provide support to uh, lesbian clients and transgender clients which is good, um, we've made some improvements there. Um, but I think the specialist support services such as ACON are invaluable for our community in terms of being able to discuss intimate, um, intimate issues around those relationships, if that makes sense. So yeah, we are extremely necessary, I think, don't you, Clark? No, but issues around violence are the same, I think, generally throughout the community, but the particular dynamics around gay and lesbian, transgender and intersex relationships means that we need counsellors like Sarah and Themistos to be able to disclose those issues candidly and without shame. Um, a lot of people are a bit confronted by my approach in court to say we have a specialist support service for the community and usually the first response from men is I don't need anything from you right now and I don't need to talk about this and almost all of those men will contact me subsequently so it is critical yeah. and the cultural shift in police is tremendous yeah. Yeah, it's making a, I think it's making a huge difference to us as well um, you know the education that we roll out amongst our officers um, statewide has been has improved significantly in the 15 years that I've been in the place. Um, the recognition of the differences that exist within GLBTIQ relationships when it comes to how domestic violence manifests itself, I think it's really important that we are learning, continue to learn to address those differences and to identify them, to actually be able to speak to people and ask the right questions in order to gently enable them and allow them to disclose what they need to disclose so we can help them. You know? um, like anything, I think, uh, you know, I think in any industry, if you're uncomfortable with what the, a situation, you're not comfortable asking the right questions to get the information that you need. And the whole idea of educating our officers and continuing to educate them is to make them more comfortable with asking the questions, more comfortable with different lifestyles for one of them so that they don't feel uncomfortable about asking the questions in the first place. You know, so not the same topic when we talk, when we talk about dealing with um, trans people in custody. Uh, a lot of mistakes were made in the past by the police when people came into custody because they just weren't comfortable and didn't know the right questions to ask. And that's dealing with trans people 
in any way. Same with TV. It was a difficult and uncomfortable thing to have to investigate. It makes people feel bad. And for us to be able to help people as effectively as we can, we need to consistently look at how we're approaching it and ask them, learn to ask the right questions and be guided by external agencies and working with the interagencies and stuff like that and the ICLC and ACON in order to make our response better. I think that that's how we continue to improve our service. Because I just, I want everyone to know that on the LGBTIQ domestic violence interagency, there is Domestic Violence New South Wales, Cedric Community Legal Centre, ACON, the police are all there. We do work closely with police to build their strong relationships. But there was a report that was brought out at the end of last year, um, and in that report, it said that about only about 14% of LGBTIQ people actually reported the domestic violence to the police. I wish I had the statistics here. It's in comparison to roughly about 60% of. Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's one of those things we get a bit hung up on statistics. Um, it depends on who you talk to. Like, yeah. if you talk to someone like uh, One Eight Hundred Respect or DV Line, and you ask them, um, you know, what percentage of your clients are actually reporting to police, they they will probably some, say somewhere between you know 20 and 50 percent. And I think that stuff has shifted really significantly over the last 10 years, particularly because New South Wales Police and other um, police jurisdictions have really shifted. Like 10 years ago, a heterosexual woman would, you know, have a real problem with calling the police and. Uh, I guess having a sense of safety and knowing that she's going to be believed and that's not to say the police get it right all the time because they don't um, but they've got a hell of a lot better like things have really really improved and that's been because uh, I think police have worked really hard on it other agencies have worked really hard to build strong relationships with police and say you actually need to take this seriously I mean New South Wales Police I think it takes uh, I think it's about 60% of New South Wales Police resources domestic violence mm-hmm. so yeah so you would want that kind of you know focus and training and I think we've brought in some incredible things in the last couple of years like um, the Divi Evidence in Chief whereby um, police now go to a job and they will film on a camera um, the, the, um, the victim survivors um, evidence and that will be shown in court and that will actually be shown to the um, to the offender before he goes to court he usually um, but and I don't know how it's going with the LGBTIQ space, but I think we've had massive advances in terms yeah. of the way we're policing this stuff. There will always be a percentage of people who don't want to report to police, and, and the legal thing is not the right thing. What you do, you're not going to be able to get them to do And that's huge, mate, because um, contested litigation or anything to do with courts is... Um, I think I've been a litigation solicitor for 15 years and I still don't particularly like going to court, some people do. Um, but the experience of being in court as a victim and as a victim of violence um, is a really unpleasant experience. And to be subjected to cross-examination about your experiences of violence is a really awful experience. So the fact that video evidence can be tendered as evidence in chief is extremely powerful. It normally stops, it stops a lot of contested hearings yeah. going ahead because the offender can actually see the impact of yeah. their actions. We're seeing a, an increase in early guilty pleas. Yes, yeah. early guilty pleas. Um, for, from the contested hearings I've seen with victims, they're tremendously unpleasant. Um, and that's why we piggyback people through the court process 
so we can be there as their ally and protect them from some of the cultural elements of court which aren't particularly pleasant. Um, lawyers lawyers are lawyers, um, but um, they're, they're, they're not especially sensitive people all the time. So I think going back to what Moo said, if we start at the beginning and we emphasise what a respectful and loving and caring relationship is for GLBTIQ people right from the start, right from primary schools, um, we won't be at the end dealing with violence, tying up police resources and going to court. But you know, if people find themselves in that experience, having that experience, that's what we're here for, to be, I guess, the rainbow umbrella around that process. Sorry to interrupt this global conversation, but I'm very aware that you might have to leave in five minutes. Mm -hmm. Just before you go, um, how has the play been received? Rapturous. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, it is quite a touchy issue, and I, I don't want to reveal the play because I know that you're all going to go and see it. Um, how much do I give away? There is obviously um, it does it does approach the issue of domestic violence in an intimate relationship between two men. Um, the way that it's done, though, you don't really kind of find out. I am giving it away. The part about domestic violence. Do you hear people in the audience talking about it? Have you heard feedback on that part of the playing field? Um, look, on the first night, the preview night, one of my best friends was in the audience and I was speaking to her and her husband afterwards and we were talking about, there's a moment in the play where one of the female characters discloses something that's happened to her and this, this best friend of mine said to me, oh yeah, but that, I mean, that's it's pretty banal really, isn't it? I mean, that sort of happened at that time, you know, that was just something that happened and me and her husband looked at her and went, did it? And she said, oh, yeah, I mean, that happened to me. I, I've never told anyone about it before. And it was just this, I mean, I've got to say, it was, it was incredibly moving for me because I realised, you know, what I've known for a long time, which is that you don't need to go to Broome to, to find these stories. Sometimes they're actually, it's your best friend who's never told you this. And it's because she doesn't think that it's significant enough to have ever mentioned to anyone. And, um, you know, so the, the response to you is that people, what people are doing with the play, it's not about specifically domestic violence, but it's about naming to yourself what that thing is. Because, you know, plays should be about what we can't say in five minutes. They should need 90 minutes to, to explore. And the main thing that the play, I think, has been responded to is that people come out going, well, when have I done that in my life? When have I done that? I mean, I think coming out as as a homosexual person is part of the process is going, oh, that's what it is. That's why I'm attracted to that girl and want to, you know, it's like, it's that, that's, oh, I must be a lesbian. Yeah. Oh, I've heard this word. I know this is what this is, but that's what I am. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing with, with, with domestic violence or, or any kind of, to go, oh, oh, I was raped. That's what that was. Um, and people kind of don't name it to themselves. And I think that that's what 
is going to start the next step where people disclose. Like it takes a while for people to go, that's what happened to me. Kai came into the rehearsals um, that we had and said this amazing thing about, you know, that people fight so hard to get into a gay a lesbian relationship or any, any of the rest of our communities. Um, relationships and and then once they're in it if this if domestic violence starts to happen it's like oh my god this is the love of my life that I've you know fought so hard to, to, to have and it can't possibly be domestic violence you know so I think also people hide it they don't disclose it you know you, you said that you've been talking with police about um, going back through reports that to see whether that is actually domestic violence, like people reported it as something else, yeah. you know, like the, allergic to the cat or something, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, it's incredible what people do, I'm sure you can talk about it. Yeah. But it's, and that's true, it's, I think recognising, acknowledging it, calling it what it really is, yeah. right, and it's yeah. true, because that's it, because we just, you know, this whole thing with people, and I talk to people regularly with terrible regularity where they're like that's not that no I mean that's not that's not domestic violence and you just and trying to explain to people that you you nobody's ice is it any colder than anyone else's. What you're experiencing is domestic violence. I can help you with that and it's a really difficult thing to get through to people because they don't it's, that's not what's happening to me. Yeah and our clients will um refer friends and family to the Safe Relationships Project once they've been through that experience because they can identify yes. violence in their in their own sort of kin groups. So um, and not reporting well, you know, as a gay man and a black fella I've I've dealt with police years, <laughs> um, and it has changed culturally pace. But still a police station is designed to be Intimidating. Like a courthouse. Like a courthouse. You no, know, it's not. So, and they're not warm and friendly. No, places. exactly. So being escorted through <coughs> by someone like Kate is incredibly important, I think, yeah, for victims. Thank you very much, Lana. Thank I you must go. Um, 
and it seriously was a revelation. So, um, uh, so, it, so that, that was kind of the end. That's when I realised, and it actually hadn't finished by that stage because he, he he continued on kind of ongoing stalking afterwards. So for years afterwards, he, he um, when I first started working at Acom, he bought a shop underneath my office <laughs> to, to, to set up. So I didn't even realise that until the very end, what that was actually about. Um, so I met him on Christmas Eve, like way back 1984 I was. Um, and I was quite young, I was 16, and he was older, he was in 30, 31 or something at the time. And for the first months it was just amazing, like it was the best thing ever. Um, and, you know, uh, it was mentioned before, it takes a long time to get into a relationship, although 16 doesn't sound very long, but I've been wanting it for a very long time. Um, and uh, I got into that and it felt really good for the first six months and nine months and then he started getting jealous and if I got home from school, school if I got home from school late he'd yell at me and if I spoke on the phone for too long he'd yell at me and da 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 and it got to the point where I was actually a bit uncomfortable with the relationship within about a year five. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I didn't actually want to admit that to anybody particularly my parents because I just came out to my parents said I love this guy it was the reason why I came out to him and then to say it was not a good relationship. You know, I didn't want to have to admit that. Um, anyway, we moved in together at about the year point and from about halfway through that year, I really wanted to get out, but it was an effect, he was effective, as an abuse he was effective. He wasn't physically violent at, at that stage, but it was psychological violence. Like every, he called me fat all the time. And I, and I still carry that. If I hadn't done my homework or the cleaning by the time we got home, he would have like serious meltdowns and smash things and all, all sorts of stuff. At my mum's wedding, he was a he was a chef, he catered the wedding and he fought with all my like stand-up fight with all my cousins, so I stopped seeing them. And I got to the end of the relationship and I literally had two friends left in the world who I saw not that frequently. One of them's actually here today. Um, and uh, like I said, I read the dolly and I thought, oh my god, that's kind of what's happened and worked back. Seriously, it was kind of what happened. The, the, the final thing, um, the, our very first date was midnight mass. It was religious. It was midnight mass, um, and uh, and the very last incident was also midnight mass. Five years later, um, we were he engineered it so we were walking past the church on Oxford Street at midnight to go to midnight mass. I said I didn't want to go to church because. You know, um, and he had a complete meltdown and he hit me that night. So, um, and it was that, that minute that I realised I had to go. But it took four months for me to, to build up the courage to actually leave. Um, you said that it wasn't violent, but physically violent at first. Do you think that we're distracted by the black eyes and the bruises and perhaps we? That masks all of the other types of violence? Yeah. I think I'll, I'll we know that it's not just physical, but does everybody else know? I, I think we have been. Um, and I think that it's only just starting to come to the fore now that the, the insidious nature of psychological violence, of financial control, of isolation from friends and family, and how, how that actually makes up the bulk of what constitutes domestic violence. And because we, we haven't seen it or called it what it was. That people, that's that. Well, that's not happening to me. It's not hitting me. She's not guilty. And, and a lot of people will say, um, 
and the, you know, um, even I remember speaking to a gay man who was stabbed in the leg by his um, partner when he was trying to leave, and he said that stuff was nothing in comparison with the psychological yeah. stuff. It's the psychological <laughs> stuff that you know you heal from, you know, um, most physical injuries, but it's the um, the stuff where you are doubting yourself and you're doubting your ability yeah. to make decisions or have, and you know, normal rational sense. conversations, um, and your money's being controlled. Um, I remember speaking to a guy who was living out in um, really, really regional Australia, and the, um, I was doing your job at the time, Kai, and they, the hospital rang me randomly, and they said, look, this guy is, um, he's living with his carer, um, the guy collects all his money every fortnight, he's, um, He's allowed to roll three cigarettes in the morning, and that's his ration for the day. So it's it's weird. The thi you know the control things can be the simplest little things, but it's about that power of control, and that's where the similarity is. Um, you know, all all domestic violence relationships are about the abuse of power of control, and it doesn't matter what your sexuality or gender is. Yeah. There's 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 no abusive relationship that doesn't have emotional control. There's significant numbers that don't have physical yeah. violence, yeah. but left long enough, I reckon. Most of them yeah. in that direction. Not all, but no. I would, I would have to agree with you there. I think because then that's that the abusive partner then desensitizes so much to what they're doing and, and dehumanizes the person they're with so much that eventually physical violence is a natural progression because they have no respect for that person and then they're like nothing's different. And a healthy relationship is. Um based on your own experiences, but as GLBTI people, we grow up as little isolated pods without references to adult relationships that are functional and loving and gentle, and so we don't have that reference point necessarily. And a lot of our clients uh, draw the line at different points in terms of control and violence and conflict, and I think healthy relationships have an element of conflict, but that overbearing psychological control and abuse of power is accepted by a lot of victims for a long time, like you're saying, Brent. Mm -hmm. And once you've established your gay and you've got that relationship, you don't want to diminish it or disparage it, particularly not to family. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is, I think, one of the reasons why we find it really difficult to talk about it in our community is because, yeah. um, you know, I think there's an awful lot of uh, excusing or... Yeah. Um, Bad bystander kind of things where you look at you look at a friend's relationship and you go, it's kind of dodgy, you know, like not necessarily physical violence, but you look at something going on and you're like, you know, I mean, we're not good at that stuff. Australians are not good at like speaking, intervening, or yeah. speaking out or saying, uh, this makes me feel really uncomfortable. Are you okay? And I think if we can get better at that stuff, um, we will actually grow a culture of unacceptability around those sorts of things that go on all the time. Mm -hmm. I think as well. Uh, you know, for so long, the mainstream society, we, we've had, we've wanted to show our relationships in the best lights we possibly could, because they already don't think that our relationships are valid enough. And so if we also show that there's domestic violence, bad things happen, we're showing them that our relationships aren't perfect. It's another thing that they can diminish our relationships for. And um, I think that that's part of, you know, significant reason why it's taken us so long to approach it was, it was one of the biggest issues when we started the first campaigns as well. Yeah. So the, the first statewide campaign on domestic violence was there's no pride in domestic violence. Yeah. And the tagline of that is most gay lesbian relationships are based on love and respect. And we worked really hard to make sure that, that was the top line. Okay, because yeah. otherwise yeah. <laughs> it undermines what we've been fighting for. Yeah, and that was 10 years ago? Did you say that? Yes, that first yeah. Campaign? yeah. yeah. 
And a little bit more. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think she were a bit Not me. I'm going backwards at 29. Um, and I think yeah. that's quite poignant now to talk about, considering with the safe schools, everything that's going on, and the fact that, again, we're under attack. Again, I guess people are not wanting to come out either about their gender sexuality or yeah. especially about the abuse that's happening to me. So, yeah, yeah. this is a protective community element. Um, so you, you, you see people coming to you. First of all, going back a couple of steps, if the physical violence isn't there or isn't there yet, as far as the law is concerned, do they have a case? Is there... No, yeah, yeah. Know, no, but no, abs absolutely. An assault is the apprehension of that imminent sort of attack that's coming. It's not the actual, the battery itself or the being hit. It's being in that state of fear. And the test for a police officer now, because you can report directly to police, you don't need to make an application in court. The test for every police officer is, are you fearful for your safety or for your life? And that focuses people on the circumstances they're in, because that's quite a high threshold to me ordinarily. Um, so yes, the psychological control, the monitoring uh, your partner's phone and emails, controlling finances, controlling the social group that they see, family, and all of those elements are forms of domestic violence. And magistrates are very aware of that in their practice notes and directions, that violence takes uh, the psychological form more often than not and the assault is the end result. And I really have to say, because of the video footage that police now tend to report, what the police see every day, there are 26 local courts running domestic violence matters every week, and the lists are overflowing. But what you see as DVLOs, domestic violence liaison officers, is incredibly confronting, because you're there at the moment off the track witnessing those really awful physical assaults. So, um, it's a really tough gig, Kate. Um, oh, think, um, and I think it's really helpful. The, the, the Domestic Violence Evidence in Chief program that we now run with the uh, videoing victims, and, and not just the victims, the damage to the, to the premises, um, oh, yeah. how the, you know, the place has been turned over. Um, a person's demeanour at the time that they are reporting this incident has been invaluable to us. Yes. Because not only does it take pressure off the victims? Because, you know, um, we take pressure off the victims by being legislated to, we, we have to take action in these matters, and they are not the person um, responsible for taking action against the offender or the alleged offender. So we take the pressure off there. It allows that victim to go, I don't have any choice in this, the police are taking this action. But also, they have made their report when they're at their most vulnerable. It's been videotaped. They can be tended in court. And so there's um, the, the opportunity for the courts to see what it's like at the time, not how someone is six months later or six exactly. weeks later. Yeah. But also for the alleged offender to, to, have an, yeah. to have a genuine in, a bit of insight or a vision of what their behaviour is doing to someone. In the heat of the moment when this person is doing whatever it is that constitutes a domestic violence offence, they're not thinking, they're, not, they're, they're, they're enraged or whatever is going on, they might be affected by alcohol or drugs, they, they might just, it might just be their anger taking them over. To be able to sit back and look at these videos and see the effect that they're having on, um, on their victims, I think can only be a good thing, quite yeah, frankly, because I think that that will have 
we'll start to see some long-term effects of yes. and I and they are also given an audio copy of that DVAC interview before they leave custody. So they don't get the actual video, but an audio. So that, it's right there in their hands. And, I, I, and it we're not, obviously it's a very fresh program and we haven't done a lot of um, investigation into what we're getting at the moment because we're, we're learning new things about it all the time. But I really think that that may help to have an effect on offending behaviour. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting, Kate, and this is something I've thought about a lot over the last kind of 12 to 18 months. You know, we've had such a focus on domestic violence yeah. in the media. We've had Rosie Batty, bless her. Yeah. I'm glad that she's having some downtime now because it gives all of us a bit of a downtime too. <laughs> but we've got this incredible focus and a whole new language around things like, you know, sexual assault and domestic violence and abusive relationships. But I think it's also really important to recognise that sitting in this audience today, we probably have survivors of domestic violence and potentially perpetrators of domestic violence yep. as well. Yep. Um, like we live in a society where we're not taught about healthy relationships. Like it's badly taught in schools. Yep. It's you know it's a difficult yeah. thing that you know families Culture don't necessarily that. mirror that stuff, that kind of behaviour. Um, like we've probably all been in relationships where we've kind of looked back on it afterwards and gone, oh, you know. Was I? Was I? Did I step over my line there? And I think yeah. it's too easy to say, you know, we have this, this group of people who are victims and they're over here and that's, you know, one in three and, and those sort of st stats. And then, you know, there's these kind of evil people over here who are perpetrators of violence. And, and yes, some of them are. Some of them are art, psychopathic, you know, crazy, crazy people that should be locked up. But very few are. Actually, the, the big bulk of people who are perpetrators probably don't have the right tools and the right places to go and get help and support and the right. Mm -hmm. um, understanding of their behaviour and I think this is where some of this stuff will kick mm -hmm. in because we need to have more sophisticated conversations about this stuff yeah. rather than just saying you know all perpetrators of violence are evil over there yeah. um, and look isn't she an evil woman because she you know she bashed up her girlfriend it's actually well where how are we going to start having a conversation about what where that comes from and, and trauma and you know um, and I think we're starting to have some of those conversations in Aboriginal communities because I think communities are, yeah. this is where this stuff has to happen, you know. I mean, police is one part of the response, services are another part of the response, schools and education are another part. But unless we start talking about this stuff as a community and go, actually we've got to check our own behaviour and our attitudes, yeah. think about how we are and how we conduct ourselves in relationships, and what the different is, difference is between healthy conflict and abuse and power of control, mm -hmm. Like, we're still going to be having these same kind of conversations yeah. in 20 years' time. That's and why I think it's good to get these pictures, yeah. you know, to have these pictures, to have these records of what's, what's happened, because I, I think that that can create a conversation around Absolutely. assisting offending behaviour. Yeah, the process is artificial. <coughs> By the time it hits the court, a witness is usually recovered from that incident, and you can't recreate the circumstances of that event. No. But the video evidence is so compelling, it does lead to early guilty pleas. Mm. But it also, so in Aboriginal communities, we've got uncles and aunts who are owning the violence in community and setting up their own programs and safe houses for men as well. So men can still be part of the community and interact with family and kin, but be rehabilitated about their anger. If, I mean, I think if we had a dollar for every time we heard, she's a lovely woman or he's a lovely bloke until he has a drink yeah. or until he takes the ice or whatever it is. <laughs> um, it's just, yeah, it's owning those sorts yeah. of behaviours as a community and it does focus you on your own your sort of anger and intolerance to certain things. It's a really um, 
yeah, you have to own it, I guess, as you're saying. But... Um, just before I pass over to the audience, um, my mum told me that we're running out of time. <laughs> Brad, from your experience and the experience that you've had in the past, what might have actually helped you at the time to either recognise it earlier or to end the cycle of violence? And I, and I ask this for anybody here today that may be experiencing it themselves, as Moose said, as a perpetrator or a victim, or for anybody who might be concerned for their, their family, friends, loved ones as well. Um, I think the reason I left when I did, like I said, he hit me on that day and once in the four months between I left, so it was kind of escalating. But I actually think the reason I left is because I'd been, that was my second year at uni, the year I left, um, and the first year at uni he'd convinced me that I was doing teaching, that if I'd went to the gay group then I would never get a job as a teacher, he convinced me that because of the flavour of the education system. Um, so I never went. But in the second year, I did. I went along a couple of times. And what I saw were people who had good relationships in that group. Mm. That was, I think, the fundamental thing. And it took me a long time to realise that. But that was actually the trigger. Mm. You know, the, okay, this is not right. What's happening is not right. So I think, it, so I think seeing good relationships yes. is really important. But I also think it's, it's understanding the psychological uh, weapons. The, the, the abuser uses and being able to identify that risk. Because if I if I'd known that stuff earlier on, like I'm, basically what well, they, they take somebody and they break them down. Then they break them down so they don't have the ability to leave. If you can identify that stuff early on, then you don't get broken down and you can go. Yeah. Um, I'd like to pass it out to anybody who has a question for anyone in the panel or for the whole panel. question for um, Akon on a service perspective. Um, I can see all the work that's been done to help members of the community not feel ashamed about what people outside of our community think if they see um, domestic violence or intimate partner violence in a gay relationship and doesn't automatically mean all gay relationships are bad. Um, what's done education wise to make people feel safe within the community about how people about because we're such a small, tight-knit community that when you do report or you go to think you're going to report um, this kind of thing, there is a lot of pressure on people from outside elements inside the community saying, you will ruin that person's life, you know, how can you think that? I think that person's really lovely, I don't believe this is happening. And I don't see like a lot of education around that for people. Like, what's the focus on that at APOC? You, you guys had those fantastic prices last year. The program around the, you know, yeah. if you say something, say something, but yeah. domestic violence sort of thing. I mean, I think I think stuff is stuff will be done in that area. Yeah. Um, there's an amazing woman called um, Shannon Spriggs who's up at uh, Griffith University in Queensland, and she's basically the expert in this country on uh, bystander interventions. Mm -hmm. um, and she started to run uh, groups like training groups specifically with LGBTIQ communities. She's done some of them as more. I think she's going to be doing some down here. And it's really about equipping the community to have an understanding about where violence comes from and how it, uh, I mean, you know, like we, ha we have difficulties talking about this stuff because we go, oh yeah, domestic violence is a man and a woman and yeah. feminize in the heterosexual cisgender context and that's, you know, that's not yeah. our experience and okay, yeah, we've got, you know, beautiful national research saying that domestic violence comes from gender inequality and that's great and it's really important, but how do... How do things like homophobia and transphobia and discrimination and bullying and the things that happen uh, 
uh, to our communities from the outside and inside fit into that. And I mean, um, and you talk to Shannon and she just explains that it fits really nicely into that package of, um, of, of messy attitudes. Um, and, it, and so I think the more that we can start having those conversations in our communities mm-hmm. and recognise that our communities are not these nice, homogenous, you know, neat package things where all queers think the same, um, or they all come from the same political perspective, or um, you know, we're all able to have this sort of uh, you know nice community conversation about how. I mean, I've seen p- communities policing this stuff inside the community. Yeah. I think it's really dangerous. Yeah. You know, people putting out things on Facebook or saying, yeah. you know, he's a rapist, or you know, and that stuff is really, really dangerous. But there are ways of pulling the name aside and saying, actually, that is not okay. Let's yeah. don't talk to someone. And is there stuff being done to helping people, like support, like a support to report kind of thing, whereby you're not being judged because you're in an abusive relationship? Like, because quite you know, quite often, what what I think what you said before is really important that no one's really evil and no one's really good. There are these really good, nice people who everybody likes, who are perpetrators and victims of violence, and it's hard for people in the community to not judge when someone reports them. Can I just jump in because I think your question also targeted ACON to begin with. We've got three panellists here who have all worked for ACON. Yeah. To be really candid, I think the reason why a lot of us may be in those roles for shorter periods of time is because the funding hasn't actually been there to yeah. have sustainable yeah. um, ongoing campaigns and ongoing yeah, education and awareness. Mm. Again, Rosie Batty, I love her pieces because she probably got me funding somewhere along the line so that we could actually continue this work. This is the start since I've been in there, which is only since November. This is one of the first ways to actually start those discussions, yeah. and there will be more. And I think these discussions, people like yourself, I yeah. think, and I'm going to be really judgmental here. I think half of the people here might actually be part of the LGBTIQ community to have them sitting here and actually perhaps say, <coughs> like questions like yourself, this is the stuff that we want. This is the stuff that yeah. we're seeing. This is how it happens. And to be really honest, there probably has been there. There is a lot of work that needs doing here, and I don't believe we are an LGBTIQ community. I'm really careful to say communities because I have absolutely nothing in common with a sister girl coming from the Northern Territory. I have absolutely nothing in common with a 50-year-old white middle-class gay man with HIV. And and I think we need to be careful to, to say, yes, we have a really nice flag, but maybe we will fit under them in really different ways. It is a massive task, and I'm probably going to contact you later and say, well, can you help me with something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, work, the work has been here for yeah. 10 years. I have yeah. the poster that Brad made on my desk mm. and it is the work is there. It's, yeah. And there's a lot of pressure because I'm one of few people in the country actually funded to do this work yeah. and it does come down to, I would spend seven days a week doing it, but I, I wouldn't do it for free and I don't think anyone would reward, but it comes down to getting resources, getting money, getting funding, getting attention and having these kind of discussions. And, I think and how can the community help you pursue that kind of funding and those kind of resources and what needs to be done there? Well, first of all, I will direct you all to some pamphlets at the bar. And they do have those details and, and contact APON and contact us. We're pretty easy to find. Um, but I, also, but I, I also would also say uh, um, at a kind of policy level, Write a letter to the new minister for domestic violence and sexual assault yeah. through our because she knows this stuff. Yeah, right. She's been on to our conferences yeah. and she knows this stuff exists in our community. And again, she gave back on twelve months funding. Yeah, right. You know, like it's if we're really going to take this stuff seriously, and and New South Wales government has been one of the better ones in that they've given chunks of funding for mm-hmm. this over the years. But 
um, you know, if one in three of our relationships that something's going on, or mm -hmm. sorry, if it's affecting one in three people in our community, and we're ten percent of the population, well, we've got, you know, mm -hmm. we've, we should have some say in this. We should have some um, some attention. And I would, I would say it's affecting everyone because every single person in this room knows somebody who's in a deep relationship. I would put money on it, so whether or not you know. And bystanders, bystanders are reporting violence a little bit yeah. more because of this work. But the thing about our communities, and the same with Indigenous communities, is the last thing you want to do is criminalise a member of the community yeah, and exactly. expose them to police. Yeah. Um, and particularly for it's like a little close-knit society. Yeah, and everybody yeah. knows it isn't anonymous. Right. You know, yeah. when something like that happens in our small communities. Mm -hmm. And so that's why those discrete avenues of reporting or being piggybacked and referred to reporting. Because yeah, it's the it's the guilt and legacy of mm. um, involving institutions with extreme minorities lives. Yeah, yeah. institutions. I mean, historically, haven't wanted to contact either. Yeah. As institutions, I mean, we do live in a homophobic, transphobic, heterosexual society, and when we look at services such as the police, despite the great work they're doing, we still see those uniforms and say, well, the history of police has been really complex. Um, and, I think and a fear of services and a and fear you do of see the consequences for people even though you know they've done something not great. You yeah. see the consequences of something that would be my fault as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think also I'd like to just say that ultimately we would like to reach a point where we can intervene, we have services that intervene in offending behaviour before it becomes yeah. a criminal yeah. offence. Yeah. So people are learning better behaviours, then they're, they're seeing better relationships, they're identifying in themselves behaviour is not right and there are services for them to access so they don't end up the POI, the person of interest in an in a apprehended violence order, and they don't end up with a criminal <coughs> conviction for assault. That's what we want. We don't want to see more victims, we want to see more healthy relationships. So you had a question. I did have a question. It was just about policing in uh, rural and regional areas. So your team sounds really great but I just wanted to use that our domestic violence intervention training, all the training, every New South Wales police officer receives that training, and parts of it are tailored to. Now, I'm no expert on rural areas, but I also know, I know the challenges are different in rural areas than they are in um, you know, city areas. Um, the different services work in those areas and work with police, but again, it is it's they're difficult in that all communities are different and all communities have different needs. Um, but there isn't any New South Wales police officer that hasn't received and is not receiving ongoing training with regards to how to deal with domestic violence um, in all communities. We also, um, from a GLBTIQ perspective, the Gay and Lesbian Liaison Officer is a sexuality and gender diversity team that we're now called. It's changed. Sexuality okay. and gender diversity. But it doesn't sound as nice as GLOW. So we stick with Gay and Lesbian Liaison Officers. Um, as part of the training that we roll out across the state, we go to um, regional areas when we have the funding and um, we speak to community groups as well as the police officers in those locations in order to skill them up. Part of what we do as gay and lesbian liaison officers is what we call capacity building. Not everyone can be a GLOW, not everyone can be a domestic violence liaison officer or an Aboriginal community liaison officer or a culturally and linguistically diverse liaison officer. Um, but what those officers do, and they are, it's voluntary positions, you do it in, a, in, in um, addition to your normal duties, um, is that we help to skill up our fellow officers 
So where we identify people who are maybe not handling situations in the best way possible, we help them to be better police officers. And where we have the opportunity and the resources, we travel around the state. I say we. I stay in my pretty office in Utah mostly. Um, but people like Jackie Braw, um, our senior programs uh, manager from uh, headquarters. It's you know, um, coordinates training across the state, in particular where we identify ongoing issues or problem areas and we target our training in those areas. And the Safe Relationships Project is a statewide referral service yeah. that we work with WDB CAS, which is the Women's Domestic Violence Court Advocacy Service, and train them to take the same-sex transgender and intersex referrals. But what I always say to people is the further you get away from a cosmopolitan metropolis, the less you can rely on the rule of law mm. and enforcing the law. It's just the way it goes. The further northwest you get, yeah. Yeah. the worse it gets. So city policing is very different to country policing. It's a completely different job. Yeah. And that's the same as services too, I think. Yeah. yeah. City services are very different to rural services if there are any. Yeah, true. Any other questions from the audience? Where can you know um, young queer kids get help? Where can we get help as adults? 
Um, you know, there are some great helplines that are now pretty LGBTIQ friendly. Um, so we're getting better at, at training up the mainstream services so that they can understand us um, and our differences and our similarities. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not being done in a really coordinated way anywhere yet, I would say. Probably Victoria's doing the best work. Yeah. Um, For behaviour change. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Yeah, true. And being referred to, the perpetrators to be referred to have their behaviour changed is really critical here in New South Wales. Just just this week, um, Daniel Andrews down in Victoria announced that they've given, I think it was $140,000 for uh, a behaviour change program. Now, the way that behaviour change works in New South Wales is it's all about men's behaviour change gay men and trans men are actually included in the policy stuff around that. So mm -hmm. men's behaviour change groups, which are usually delivered in a, in a group context, um, somewhere between 10 weeks and up to 52 weeks, depending on how much funding they've got and who they're run by. There are very few of them. There are, um, I think, nine programmes that are standard across the whole state, um, only four of them government funded. Um, they are, are trialling down in Victoria um, an LGBTIQ behaviour change group, and that's the first time that's ever been done definitely in Australia, possibly anywhere in the world, mm. and that's just because the government's chucked some money in. Um, that stuff's been worked, that work's been done with gay men by decades for probably 10 or 12 years now, and they've just been running this small group once a year, um, but they're going to expand it to LGBTIQ, which I think is so exciting, because there is nowhere for people to go at the moment in our communities here in New South Wales, but mm. hopefully that will be something we'll see next. Yeah, I hope so. We've got referral points to good counsellors and psychologists and therapists, but yeah. none of those form behaviour change groups. Ironically, I would say, <laughs> if, uh, if you know somebody who you think is, you know, abusive in a relationship, I would tell them to ring the Men's Referral Service, which is a 24-7 service. They're super queer friendly. Um, and they will work with anybody. Um, so they are the experts around um, behaviour change. But I would say they would work with you know, women, they would work with trans men, trans women, anybody. Um, so if you've got somebody that you know and you're a bit worried about their behaviour and you think they're ready to have a conversation with someone, I'd say ring, ring them. Uh, on that note, I'll ask the rest of the panellists, if for the audience here, if they know anybody experiencing DFE or somebody that they're concerned about, what would your one piece of advice be? That's the most important thing. Uh, in all likelihood, they'll say it's not an issue, yeah. uh, but at least they know that somebody is thinking of them, so when they're prepared to talk, yeah. you know, yeah. whenever it is, yeah. they know there's somebody there. Yeah. Start a conversation. Start, start a conversation. Yeah. Absolutely. Start that conversation. Even if someone's defensive or resistant at first, Invariably, it opens up a stream of consciousness. Yeah. And I would say call it what it is as well. Yeah. And I would also say downstairs on the bar are some brochures. <laughs> Take some and hand them to them. <coughs> I will be down there handing out brochures. Our wonderful counsellors, Sarah and Demistos, will be hanging around back here. Feel free to have a chat um, or at least just ask them for our contact details or come and get a brochure referral and you can contact ACON anytime you want. Um, and there's also a list of other referral services because you may not want an LGBTIQ um, service and also we can refer you to non-LGBTIQ services as well. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for talking about a very serious issue. Um, I appreciate all of your input. Thank you, panellists. It's been wonderful. I'm sure we could probably talk for hours on this. What we do, that's our job. <laughs> yeah. um, again, thank you for coming.
coming. I hope the rest of your Saturday night is maybe talking about something a little bit nicer. But thank you for engaging in the really serious discussions because I think this is what's really important. Um, That's just one thing. What do you guys do to degrade? You know, like you're we constantly. Just, we were just talking. I was just talking this, about that. This outside, kind of yeah. barrage of domestic violence coming at you, coming at you all the time. What kind of support network is there for you? How do you? Vicarious trauma comes up, <laughs> comes, comes up a lot in our work. I'm not sure you go past. I'm in this job because this is my break. I've worked with clients up until this job recently, so I needed that client break, so I came to talk about it with these guys instead. Yeah. Um, so this is my break, so I don't know. Somebody else. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, I imagine it's a bit different. We have internal, um, yeah. you know, support services, <clears throat> but um, I have a toxic relationship as well, I'm really close friends that I debrief with regularly, and um, I, and I think that that's extraordinarily important um, to be able to do that, because, yeah, there's a lot of darkness in the things that you have to be confronted with, and it's, um, and then, you know, and also, it, it will invariably bring up things in your own past, in your own life, um, and family situations and friends that you've dealt with in the past, for example, relationships with women, Having a strong personal network mm. is extraordinary. It's invaluable. You couldn't live without it. You couldn't be a healthy individual. They could, they could <laughs> so yeah. I think also um, kind of knowing where to get help when you when you need it. Like one eight hundred respect is the national um, counselling line for domestic and family violence and sexual assault. But they will speak to anybody. They'll speak to you know a family member who's worried. They'll speak to somebody who's dealing with this stuff in their work every day, and they're not sure, quite sure how to do the next bit. They will. Talk, talk to and support anybody and um, in my organisation we have four the division so we go and do once every um, three months we go we have to go and speak to somebody and we do uh, a trauma tech, tech like a trauma checklist um, and they measure how they experience trauma because we're doing this stuff all day every day so um, I think it's just being aware of it and how it impacts on you and maybe doing some training about it and then going out and do thing, doing things that are completely disconnected yeah. you know walking your dog or Anything. Read a book. Yeah. You know. Eat ice cream. 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 Eat there is one small pamphlet down there that has a really uh, discreet cover. It's got some little happy-looking people. Um, and the wallet size. Oh, no. no. <laughs> there is another one. So it's about wallet size, and that can also tuck in there as well. And that's got a list of services. Um, and feel free to call any of us anytime. Good luck. And thank you, Colin. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Thank you. Thank you.